Thank you, Jenny. Good morning. Uh, my name's Dan. If we haven't met before, I'm just going to get rid of this. There we go. Great to see you. Uh, and, uh, and kids, great to see you here as well this morning. Daisy, I know that we're still waiting for your little baby sister to arrive, hopefully very soon. <laughs> I saw you and down the back. G'day, mate, and Faith as well. Uh, we've just heard from God's Word, kids. We've just heard God speak to us through the Bible. Uh, and so we're going to now understand what it is that God has said to us. And I, I want you to imagine, everyone, uh, someone that you know who is just like far from Jesus. Okay, like the, the person you, you can think of who is least likely to become a Christian in your life. So it could be a friend, it could be a family member, just, just someone who's far away. And I want you to imagine that they come to you, the Sabo, and they sit down with you and they say, hey, you know, I know that you're into all this Christian stuff, but I've been thinking, I think I want to become a Christian as well. What should I do to have eternal life? <laughs> right? What, what would you want to say to them? Like once your words come back, <laughs> what, what would you want to say? Because you could have been waiting for this moment for what, like years, decades? Maybe you've been praying for this person. What, what would you want to say to them? And it's, it's simple, isn't it? You just tell them, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And maybe you'd want to say to them, well, you pray these words after me and you lead them through the sinner's prayer or something like that. I mean, it's, they're keen. They're asking the question, how can I have eternal life? So all you've got to do is get them over the line, right? So what goes wrong here in Matthew 19? <laughs> because this man comes up to Jesus and he asks a very similar question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And yet when the conversation's all said and done, we don't see him putting his hands in the air, singing Amazing Grace and walking into the waters of baptism, do we? He walks away sorrowful. And our presumption, I think correctly, is that he has nothing more to do with Jesus from that day forward. So what goes wrong? Should Jesus have just led the man through the sinner's prayer and gotten him over the line? Well, no. There's something more that Jesus demands of the man. In fact, there's something more that he demands of anyone who wants eternal life. Something more he demands of the person you were just thinking of, and of you, and of me. Here's the big question. What does it take... If I could just go back one, sorry, Rob. What does it take for someone to have eternal life? And how you answer that question just has, has profound implications. It has implications for what you would say to your friend if they came to you saying, what must I do to become a Christian, right? Obviously, you see that. It has implications as well for your own assurance of whether you have eternal life or not. If you've been a Christian for some time, how do you know that you're still a Christian? It has to do with how you answer this question. It also has profound implications for the most important question of all, which is, do I have eternal life? Yes or no? That's what hangs on this question. And so let's ask the Lord for help to think well about this this morning. Jesus answers it for us here in Matthew 19, uh, but we need his help to hear him properly. So would you pray with me?
Lord, as uh, some of us have been reading through the book of James this week, um, maybe we've been struck by the words to, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that very thing this morning. To open our hearts, minds and very lives to you and what you will say to us. To receive humbly this word that saves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick thought as we start. You've heard of the the great church reformer, John Calvin. Yes, he was around in the 1500s. Uh, he was preaching in a church in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, something happened during his pastorate. He was, he was preaching through the book of Psalms, and then all of a sudden he had to leave the city, right? He had to flee because of this, this whole controversy. And uh, three years later, he was welcomed back to Geneva. Do you know this story? No? Okay. He was welcomed back to Geneva, and uh, he gets back in the pulpit, this church that he hasn't been in for three years. And so what does he do? Well, he picks up on the very next verse, which he left off on three years earlier. Don't you just love that? That's his unwavering commitment to expository preaching through the Word of God. Like he, he knew that this is God speaking, so he just picked up on the very next verse. And the way he put it, I love this, is he had an unshakable confidence in the Word above all earthly powers. What a quote. That's our confidence too, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's why as Rob leaves and as I step in, we're just picking up literally on the very next verse, right? We're halfway through a chapter. We're just picking up on verse 16. In that sense, it's business as usual. We're just trusting the Lord to speak through his word and that he will do. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, please open one. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, Grab your phone, go to Matthew 19, put the letters ESV after it. Uh, if you want a church Bible, there's some just down the back there. Um, and we're on page 824, Matthew 19, verse 16. Literally the very next verse, right? Different accent, but same scriptures. <laughs> so here we go. We're going to answer three questions about how to have eternal life. Rob, if we could, there we go. And just go back one for me. It's just double-clicking for some reason. There we go. Thank you. What do most people think is required to have eternal life? And then second, what does God actually require? And then finally, what does God do? We're going to spend most of our time on that middle question with the first two sort of fitting around it. I think that's what's happening here in this passage. So here we go with the first question. What do most people think is required? What do people think it takes to go to heaven or get right with God or have eternal life. And here we see the man come up to Jesus in verse 16. And kids, I want you to picture this man. He's wearing very fancy clothes, maybe a purple cloak, which back then purple was the color of riches. It's very hard to make things out of purple. And so picture him walking up in this purple with maybe like gold trimmings on it. Because in verse 22, we learn that he's rich, he has great possessions. In verse 20, we also learn that he's young. So you could picture this young entrepreneurial type. Do you know who Mark Zuckerberg is? 
is the inventor of Facebook. He invented Facebook when he was 19 years old. Picture someone like that, coming up like at the height of their fame, the height of their wealth, coming up to Jesus. And not only that, we also learn that he knows the commandments, right? So he's probably Jewish. He's part of the people of God. And so if you're one of Jesus' disciples and you see this man coming up to Jesus and, and asking, what should I do to have eternal life? What are you thinking? You're thinking, welcome to the team, buddy. <laughs> like, like, what an acquisition. Let's get this guy on our draft, you know? Because, right, he, he's rich, he's young, he's full of potential, he's keen, he's spiritually curious, he's, he's an Israelite. Imagine what we could do with this man's wealth. We could add another story to the church. We could support another dozen missionaries. Everyone gets a Tesla, whatever, right? So this guy, he's looking great. And so verse 16, he comes up, teacher, what good deed must I, have, uh, must I do to have eternal life? He's keen, he's spiritually curious, looks great. But Jesus sees something more. He doesn't merely see externals. Jesus is the son of God. And so he actually sees the internals. He sees into the heart of man. He knows what is inside of man. And so he sees something more going on. And what we're going to see is him unpicking what's really happening for this man here. Verse 17, he begins doing that. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Who's that? Kids, do you know there's only one who is good? Who is it? God. Yeah, and Jesus. Good, Ewan. That's right. God alone alone is good. And, you know, if you've been a Christian for any stretch of time, then when this man says, what good deed must I do? And I heard Jenny accentuate those words. Actually, where is she? Yeah, I heard Jenny accentuate, what good deed must I do? Our antennas go up, don't they? Right? There's no good deed you must do to enter eternal life. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about the forgiveness that he brings. Just trust in Jesus. And of course, but notice something surprising here. Jesus doesn't rebuke the guy, does he? He doesn't tell him, stop doing good deeds. Actually, he tells him, keep doing good deeds. Because read the rest of verse 17, right? There's only one who is good, only God. But then if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep doing good deeds. Keep what God has said. See, because to the Jewish mind, life is found in keeping the Scriptures. Life is found in doing God's will. And so Jesus tells him what he already knows. Keep the commandments. And so the man asks, which ones? Because yeah, there's lots. <laughs> and so Jesus then begins to give him a list in verse 18. And you can see it there. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. What, what's he quoting? What's he quoting? The Ten Commandments or, or the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments. Interestingly, though, he doesn't start with number one. Do you notice that? Do you know what number he starts with? You shall not murder. What number is that? It's number six. You shall not murder. Yeah, Judy's got it. Yep, back from teaching scripture. That's the, the sword stabbing someone six. <laughs> shall not murder. That's right. Uh, so you shall not murder is where he begins. And then he goes down to number nine. You shall not bear false witness. Don't lie. And he skips number 10. And then he goes back up to number five. Honor your father and mother. Why does he do that? Why is he saying them out of order? I mean, everyone would have picked up on that. They knew them in order. So why is he doing this? I think it's 
because he's using a strategy here. And it's a kind of strategy that a hostage negotiator uses. Because there are two kinds of ways of, of negotiating with you know, someone who's taken hostages. Uh, the first is the die-hard technique, if you've seen die-hard. It's where you say, now I have a machine gun. And then you solve the problem you know, in light of that information. <laughs> the other way that's generally more effective is to try and build rapport with the person who's taken the hostages. You, you try and build easy agreement and then you move up from there. You know, we can both agree that we don't want people to die right? And then you move up from there. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. It's sort of something like he's saying to the guy, well, of course you haven't murdered anyone, right? And the guy goes, well, of course not. No. And, you know, you've never committed adultery. Well, dude, like, look at how rich I am. I'm young. I'm wealthy. I'm in the prime of life. You see my trophy wife that I've got? Why on earth would I cheat? And you've never stolen? I've got enough money for multiple lifetimes. Of course, I haven't stolen. What about your neighbor? Have you, have you loved your neighbor? I live on 35 acres. I don't have any neighbors. So I, I, technically, I guess. <laughs> so you, you reach his conclusion in verse 20, all these I have kept. Right, Jesus, everything you're saying, I've done it. And we might roll our eyes and go, yeah, right. Didn't you listen to the Sermon on the Mount? We know that when Jesus says, you shall not murder, there's more to it. It's not just murder. It's actually what, how you treat your brother in your heart. We know that. But the disciples standing there, I don't think they're rolling their eyes. I don't think they're going, this guy's off on a different planet. They're actually looking at this guy. And what they see, remember kids, is the purple cloak, the gold trimmings. He's wealthy. And if someone's wealthy to the Jewish mind, why is that? It's because they've obeyed God. They've kept his commandments. Now, that's wrong. That's a wrong way of thinking, but that's how they thought at this point in history. It's called retribution theology. If you obey God, he will bless you with wealth. That's the idea. It's wrong, but that's how they thought, right? And so they look at this guy who's really wealthy, and what do they think? He's a good man. He must have obeyed God. And after all, he's kept all these sort of first century Jewish conventional ideas of what makes for a good person. He doesn't murder. He doesn't steal. He doesn't commit adultery. He loves his neighbor in as much as he has neighbors. He honors his father and mother. I mean, I'm sure that they're well looked after by all of his wealth. And we could translate these conventions perhaps into our modern day culture as well. You know, if, if a coastie came up to Jesus and this interaction happened today, then maybe Jesus would say something like this. He'd say, you know, what, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus might play with him a little bit in this way, hostage negotiation, and say something like, well, here's what you need to do. Give everyone a fair go, right? Don't judge them too quickly. Work hard for your family. Support your local. And above all, do your best not to hurt anyone. Live and let live. And most Coasties would go, I reckon I've done all right then. I must be on God's good side. You see what I'm saying here? He's playing with the guy a little bit, building some rapport. But the question is, is that enough? Is it enough to merely meet society's conventions for what makes a good person? Is it enough even to keep God's commandments? Does that put you on God's good side? 
Does that give you eternal life? And yeah, I think actually the rich man wonders about that very question. I think it's on his mind. Because even though he's ticking off the list of don't murder and don't steal and so on, verse 20, if you read the rest of what he says, he says, all these I have kept, but then he asks a question. Have a look. Verse 20. What still do I lack? I kind of like the guy at this point because he's, he's thinking a bit more deeply. I like people like this who don't just take things at surface value. But this is where Jesus' negotiation strategy takes another step because he's built all the rapport, he's built some agreement, but now it's time to make a demand. And that brings us to our second question. What does God actually require? What does God actually require? What does he demand of us? if we want eternal life. And Jesus' demand here to the man has to do with the commandments that he actually didn't ask the guy about before. Remember commandments 1 through 4 that he skipped over and commandment 10. We're going to circle back around to them now because you might not know this, but the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is actually in two parts. The second part, commandments 6 through 10, has to do with loving your neighbor. Right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. It all has to do with how we treat other people. The first four all have to do with loving God. So you think about first two commandments. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You must not bow down to idols. And then you must not misuse God's name. And you must keep a Sabbath rest. Those all have to do with loving God. So you have love God, love your neighbor. And in fact, Jesus summarizes the whole law in those two commands. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to deal with that once we get to Matthew 22. But here, what he's doing is, is he sort of said, let's build agreement around commandments 5 to 9, but now let's go to the ones that I think you struggle with more, mate. And so listen to what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, or, or literally, if you would be complete, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So there's the demand. Stop coveting. That's commandment 10. Stop coveting. Stop jealously acquiring more and more. Go and sell what you have. Take the purple coat with the gold trimmings off your back. Remove your rings. Sell your house on its beautiful 35 acres. Sell it all. Give it away. Then come and follow me. That's what it takes for you. To have eternal life, Jesus says. Not just meeting society's standards for goodness. Not just following the commandments that you find easy. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. You must meet God's requirements and all of them. Is that confronting? It's very confronting. But do you see what Jesus has done here? He's led the guy to realize that he has a bigger problem than he thought. He asks, what still do I lack? And maybe he's got a mixture there of wondering and confidence. You know, Jesus might actually affirm me here and he might say, nothing. You lack nothing. You're in. No, it's, it's totally gone the other way. Jesus has now demanded that he sells everything. And so what, what, what's the problem for the man here? Because he walks away sorrowful, like we, we said. He, nothing to do with Jesus anymore. What's the problem? Is it wealth? It might be wealth. Because after all, money is the root of all evil, isn't it? Thank you. First Timothy 6.10, that's actually a frequent misquote. Yeah. Money, uh, the love of money 
Not money itself. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's the actual quote from 1 Timothy 6.10. And at the end of the day, that's actually this guy's problem. It's not just money itself. It's the love of money. Think about the first two commandments, remember. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to idols. That's really the problem. That's why Jesus sort of like pulled the pin on the grenade of those commandments and then didn't actually read the explosion until later, right? It's because that's this man's problem. What does he covet? What does he desperately want? What does he desperately need? What, what can he not imagine life without? Well, it's his wealth. That's why he walks away sorrowful. Because get this, and this is the principle for all of us. How do you know what it is that you worship? How do you know what it is that you bow down to and that you love above all else? Here's the question. What can you not imagine life without? It's that which you will not willingly ever give up, even if you really had to. You can be face to face with Jesus talking about how to have eternal life, right? Talk about like meaningful spiritual moments face to face with the Lord of all creation, having a conversation about how do I go to heaven? And yet Jesus can then identify this thing for you, whatever it is. And you walk away going, huh, well, I guess it wasn't worth it to follow Jesus then. That's how you know whether you worship God or something else. Is there something like that for you? It could be wealth. Or is it a relationship? Right? I, I can't imagine life without being married. Or is it perhaps I can't live without owning my own house? I can't live without this job and the, the status and the, the authority that it gives me. I can't live without this quality of life, this level of comfort. I can't live without this group of friends or this level of physical health or this way of representing my identity to the world. Because, like, you know, I'm sure that you want to follow Jesus, right? I mean, that's why you're here this morning. I'm sure that you want to follow Jesus. But look at what happens here. Like you and me, this man wants eternal life, right? We're catching that? He wants eternal life, but he walks away from Jesus filled with sorrow. Head hanging low, arms drooping, coat on his back, rings still on his fingers. Why? Because Jesus has exposed his heart. He's exposed where his love truly lies. He's exposed what this man truly worships. He loves, trusts, depends on his wealth more than he ever would on God. And leaving aside other things that we might be tempted to worship, that is the danger for all of us, friends. It is the danger of the love of money. And I mean, even in a cost of living crisis, this is a danger. Sometimes in a cost of living crisis, it's more of a danger for us because whether we have a lot or we just want a lot, I mean, wealth promises so much and that's, that's the danger of it. That's why Jesus says in verse 23, look at this. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty. Other gospels actually render that word, it's impossible, right? But only with difficulty will a rich man Enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, why is it that wealth is so dangerous? Well, it's because it, it tells us a different story. It threatens to usurp God's place in our lives. Because remember, when we were looking back in chapter 18, Jesus uh, was, was uh, saying, you must become like something, or more literally someone, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what that was? You must become like a, a child. Yeah, that's right. Dependent, vulnerable, reliant on God, abandoning any sense that I'm contributing something to this equation. Uh, totally sort of just trusting God to hold them. And wealth tells us a different story. It says, well, if you've got me, you're not dependent. You're independent. You're powerful. You can do what you want. You don't need God. You don't need anyone. You're safe. You're secure. You can be anything you want to be. That's the story that wealth tells us. And hence, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Kids, imagine that. Imagine getting a camel, and now imagine opening up mum's sewing kit, getting a needle, and trying to squeeze this camel through the little tiny slit in that needle. How's it going to go? <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> right? It's easier for a Toyota Camry to drive through a paperclip. It's easier for a Boeing 747 to fly through a wedding ring than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You get it? And the Africa Bible commentary, really excellent commentary. I suggest you read it on just about every passage you can. It has a, a really challenging insights, particularly for Westerners' use of wealth. So it puts it this way. Poverty in itself is not a virtue, right? Nor is it a qualification for entry into God's kingdom. Important point there. Poverty doesn't make someone more holy. Although poor people have a very special place in God's thoughts, of course. Material poverty does, however, predispose one to depend entirely upon the mercy of others. And that quality is important for anyone who wants to follow Jesus and enter into the kingdom of God. Remember, become like a child. Jesus is Lord of all, and one must be prepared to give him first place in one's life. Remember, the way up is down. We must become like children, dependent, humble, vulnerable. And the love of wealth stands in the way of that. But it brings us then to a question. Probably this has been sitting on your mind. Is Jesus' command to this man to go and sell everything the same command that he gives you and me today? Have you been wondering that? Should you go sell your car? Give the money away to the poor? Should you go and sell a bunch of clothes in your wardrobe? Give it to someone in need among us? Should you empty your savings account? Because that betrays a, a lack of trust in God? Well, we'd have to ask why this man is given this command by Jesus. Remember, he's trying to expose a problem. There's a strategy that Jesus is employing here. And the rich man, of course, has a misplaced sense of his own goodness, as we've picked up. He's not actually good. Like all of us, he's still a sinner at heart. He still worships wealth. And that's why Jesus tells him to go and give it all away. It's because it's keeping him from trusting God and, and following Jesus. Right? So there's a specific 
problem that he's confronting here, does he give, give that same command to everybody? Well, have a think about it. Jesus' disciples still had wives and kids back home. Where were they living? In houses. So they still owned houses, right? Even though they weren't living in them, they still owned them. And then if you look across the rest of the Gospels in Luke 8.3, we hear about a, a group of women who begin to follow Jesus. So Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, others. And it says in Luke 8.3 that they provided for the disciples out of their means. As in they, they still have means. They still own things and they're, they're contributing them freely, but they, they still have things. In Acts 16, a woman named Lydia becomes a Christian and she owns a house. She doesn't give the house away, but she uses that house as sort of like the base of a new church plant in Philippi. So you, you see the picture, right? Uh, that there are faithful disciples and Christians all across the scriptures that still own things and use them for Jesus and the gospel, but they still own them. So clearly he doesn't command everyone to give away everything, right? In a sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's not. Because it's not up to us to put a limit on what Jesus might demand of us. Think about Zacchaeus, for example. Luke chapter 19. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. When Zacchaeus responds to him. And what was, Jesus, what was Zacchaeus' response? Well, it was essentially the moment he became a disciple, the moment he began to follow Jesus, he gave away half of his wealth. There and then. And he said, whoever I've cheated out of anything, I'm going to pay him back four times as much. Now, what enabled him to do that? Was it a change of allegiance? A change of what he served? A change of what he desired and loved? He's saying, I'm no longer serving my money. I've been living for that till now, but now I'm serving Jesus. Right? That, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. And so Zacchaeus took that quite literally, and said, okay, well, I'm giving a whole bunch of stuff away. We can't put limits on what Jesus might demand of us. That's the thing. See, me and my wants aren't the sun about which the rest of the universe orbits, right? Actually, becoming a Christian is not just about getting a ticket to heaven. It's about totally displacing myself from the center of the universe and putting Jesus there. He is the, the right center of the universe. And now me and, and my wants orbit around him. Either way, it's not just about selling stuff. It's actually about the heart. And this is what prompts a commentator of Matthew, R.T. France, to put it this way. He says that the release from material preoccupation is not in itself the secret of eternal life. You hear that? It's not that you sell things to pay the price to get into heaven. So the release from material preoccupation is not in itself the secret of eternal life. It's the introduction to a new way of life as a disciple of Jesus. As he says, follow me. Or in other words, the essence of Jesus' command is not divestment. It's not just giving stuff away. It's discipleship. And discipleship entails turning everything over to Jesus. Everything we own. Again, it's, it's not about selling all we have to afford the entry price into eternal life because the price has been paid, hasn't it? The price has been paid. We owe God our very lives because we've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. Like the rich man, we've failed to worship God above all else. 
we've failed to love him, let alone keep his commandments. But Jesus paid for our sin with his very life. He took God's judgment in our place, as we were just seeing a moment ago. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am his forever. That's what Jesus has done. The price has been paid. It's forgiveness, full and free. But when Jesus calls someone to trust in him and follow him, he doesn't just ask them to pray a sinner's prayer. That's why he doesn't do this in Matthew 19. Nor does he ask them merely to put up their hand in an evangelistic rally. Here I am, Jesus, I choose you. Or, you know, belt out a Christian song as they cry. He doesn't merely call people to intellectual assent or emotional fervor. He calls them to costly discipleship. It's not only to trust Jesus as Savior, but follow him and embrace him as Lord. Because we serve a Lord who gave and 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 gave, and gave even to the point of his death, his death for us. And so when we trust in him and begin to follow after him, we ought not be surprised that he calls us to a life of self-giving. Here's another way of putting it. If anyone wants eternal life, if anyone aims to follow after Jesus, then ask yourself, if he wants every dollar, every cent, will you give it to him? No limits. Every cent. Will you? Would you? Have you in your heart? Can you see it in the way that you live? In what you truly desire, imagine, live for, love and worship? Big question, right? Which is why it makes a lot of sense that the disciples have this response in verse 25. See, the disciples heard this. They see the man walk away. They're greatly astonished. And they say... Who then can be saved? If that's the demand, if that's the requirement, who on earth can be saved? Because this is hard. In fact, it was too hard for the rich man. He walked away, head in his hands. Spiritually curious, keen, outwardly moral, appearing to be blessed by God and his wealth, but walking away because his trust and his dependence and his worship lay elsewhere. In terms of human effort, the disciples are right. This is impossible, which is why Jesus pauses for a moment. Look at verse 26. He pauses. He looks at his disciples. And the verb there for look is not just like a, yeah, he just kind of glances at them. No, he holds their gaze. He eyeballs them because he doesn't want them to miss what he's about to say. Here's what he says. Jesus gazed at them and he said, With man this is impossible. True. But with God, all things are possible. And this is not a verse that, you know, a professional sports player should just get tattooed on their arm. You know, God helps me win the Super Bowl because all things are possible with God. Or, you know, someone who's in a hospital bed goes... God's going to heal me from my illness because all things are possible with God. That's, that's wrong. In context, this is about solving a problem in the human heart that we are powerless to solve. Because like the rich man, none of us meet God's standards. We 
might meet society standards. We might meet some of the commandments sometimes, <laughs> but we all fail. We might look like good people, but what does God really require? Remember, total, undivided worship and devotion since he alone is worthy. After all, Jesus says, there's only one who is good. Living for anything less than God himself is, and kids hear this, it's, it's, like, it's like the kid on Christmas Day who gets all these great gifts, okay? Amazing gifts. And, and maybe there's some under the, the tree from their grandparents, and maybe there's some under the tree from their parents as well, love from mum and dad, okay? And they open up the gifts, and they're just so enraptured by the gifts. But then mum and dad say, do you enjoy your gifts? And they say, get lost, mum and dad. Stuff you. Get out of my face. Like, can you imagine a kid saying that to their parents? How offensive, right? Loving the gift, hating the giver. And yet, that's all of us. Taking God's good gifts while hating the one who is truly good, rebelling against him, ignoring him. And yet, even the best of our, very, our good works are just like dirty rags. And our only hope, therefore, is that God himself does something to change things. We can't fix it. It's a problem as deep as the human heart itself, a problem of desire and trust and, and what we truly love. But the good news is, of course, that God can change our hearts. Do you believe that? With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Even your heart, even today, which in fact is what's necessary. Because as we've seen, eternal life is not just about a ticket. It's not just about getting over the line. It's not just about making it through the pearly gates. It's about discipleship. It's about a radical reorientation. That's why the Bible uses the word repentance. Chuck a yui, as our American friend puts it. Right? 180. It's about pulling up anchor on the things that we trust and depend on in this life and instead hitching ourselves to God alone. I'm going to love him above all else. Worship and live for Him above all else. Depend on and trust in Him for else. Not least of which when it comes to the forgiveness of my sins, but in a more total and complete sense. I'm going to grow into loving and trusting and desiring and, and living for God above everything. And that's a work that we can't do ourselves. Impossible with man. Possible only with God. That's why the prophet Ezekiel, sort of looking forward to, to this work being done, put it this way in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You notice just all the, the I language here. I will, I will, I will, not you, I will do it. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, what makes someone actually leave behind their old life and do this radical reorientation where they begin to follow Jesus? Only God, only the sovereign Lord himself, only emergency heart surgery from the master surgeon. It takes a changed heart, a regenerated heart, a heart made alive. 
Only that heart will actually truly turn to Jesus as both Savior and Lord to trust in him, depend on him and shift their allegiance in their worship and their love, which is exactly what God demands of us and is exactly what God does for us. He saves us by Jesus' work on the cross and he transforms us to trust in this Jesus and turn everything over to him. That's the God that stands behind these words that we've been reading today. And the question is, how will you respond to him? Imagine, this is the moment you're coming up to Jesus. What must I do to have eternal life? And you've heard what he has to say. So how today will you respond to him? How will you respond to what God has done? Do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus above all else? Are you depending on his work alone to save you? And not years ago, today. Are you depending on his work on the cross? Remember, the only way up is down. No good work will save you, friend. No good work can fit us for eternal life. Only God himself can do that. Do you trust him? And if you do trust him, can you see? that he's transformed your heart. And then indeed he is transforming it. Is he redirecting your love, your allegiance, your trust, your worship? Do you see that in your life? And look, I'm just to be honest, this is why I'm here as a pastor. It's because I want to see God do that work in your life and transform you so that you follow Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's why I quit my old job and started serving you lot, right? That's why I'm here. Because I want to see you follow Jesus, free from slavery to sin, freely forgiven through Christ's work on the cross, and freely loving and serving the Lord Jesus who has saved you. That's what I want to see. And you could be here for the first time this morning, or you could have been here for 50 years, long since predating when I've been here, right? But, but the choice is actually the same. This is the moment. It's a choice today. Not a choice yesterday, not a choice 50 years ago, but how do you respond to Jesus today? And my deepest hope is that you wouldn't walk away from him today proud because you reckon you've actually kept his demands. You haven't. I haven't. But my other hope is that you wouldn't walk away from him sorrowful like the rich man who realized that I can't keep his commands. Like he was right. But what he missed is that God is the one who enables us first to be saved and then to follow. And so instead, I pray, I really do earnestly, that you would walk towards Jesus today and you would walk towards him humbly. Humbly, like a child. Humbly receiving what the Lord has done to save you. Humbly turning over everything you have for his use because you see him alone as good him alone as worthy humbly setting your life and everything you are in orbit around him the glorious lord jesus for that is a heart of a true disciple and that's what eternal life is all about at the end of the day we could be worshiping jesus forever now it's just the start so let's pray together
Lord, who am I to open your word and to proclaim these truths which I knowingly still fail at? And who are we to sit here knowing that we've just heard the voice of the living God crashing over us like waves, falling down upon us like crumbling mountains? Lord, who can look upon your face and live only in Christ, only through our precious Savior, only through your kindness so undeserved, so unearned? Oh Lord, humble us, we pray. And cause us again to fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Find him lifting us up. Find him transforming us so that we might become wholehearted, passionate disciples. Lord, do the work we cannot do, we ask. We will obey, we will follow, we will trust. Help us see you as you are and love you above all else as the source of all good, the only true good. In Jesus' name, amen.